You're listening to Three Valleys Radio. Welcome to our In Conversation program. Every week we talk to a sporting personality to find out just what makes them tick. From their early childhood, to their professional career, to their musical tastes. We cover it all. So sit back and enjoy as we talk to this week's special guest. Here on Three Valleys Radio. Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome to In Conversation. Tonight's guest is a household name on the TV, commentating on BBC One for the horse racing, and also a very capable jockey with 427 winners to his name. It's none other than Richard Pittman. Good evening, Richard. How are you? I'm okay, Adrian. Do you know, I always thought I rode 470, but I've been seeing this 427 number several times, so... Perhaps I was wrong, but it doesn't really matter now. It's so long ago. Yeah, I suppose it must be for you, but uh, some some great memories, I've no doubt. Oh, absolutely superb. I mean, I'm, I'm old now, can't remember what I had for breakfast, but, you know, some of those races are etched in my mind. Yeah, I'm sure they would be. But let's start at the beginning. You, you were born on the 21st of January 1943. What, what are yep. your first recollections of, of getting on a horse or a pony? Ah, quite, quite good, quite good, that. Um, my sister eventually married a jockey. She hadn't at the time, but that she rode, or two of my sisters rode, and she used to insist that I, I learned to ride before going to school, and we borrowed a pony called Honey Bunch, horrible little thing, and she would take me along the roads around Cheltenham. Of course, it was so quiet back in those days in the in the late 40s, I suppose, yeah, maybe early 50s. Um, so I'd be on a lead range, she'd be on a bicycle, and she'd take me trotting up the verges, and eventually, you know, I was a horrible little little brat, and, and she said, we'll canter now, I'd cry, and w- one day she got clever and hit the horse on the rump, and off it went to the canter, and I loved it ever since. <laughs> I can't imagine you'd be a nasty little brat, as you put it. So, <laughs> but uh, so so obviously, you know, a, a love affair with horses began. Um, how did it progress from that point, then, Richard? Well, not through design, really. Um, I went to Tewkesbury Grammar School. I was always in the top three in subjects. Uh, but when it came, to, but I used to play truant and go to Chelton races every, because I lived <laughs> half a mile from the course, <laughs> every meeting I'd play truant. But anyway, when it came to the O-levels, you wouldn't remember those because they're GCSEs now. Yes, I would. I, I've, got, I've got three. 
<laughs> but I failed all nine. Now that was a real shock mm. uh, to me and to my father. He said, "Well, look, if you obviously not going to be academic, get off and uh, and get a job." So when did the stables? But you know, I failed them, and I know why because I've done it so much since. I didn't read the questions. <laughs> you know, I read the first bit and went blabbering on and on the papers and. <laughs> Oh, it's, it's it's terrible, you know. Why don't you take a bit of time? Yeah. I think it's funny, but I've got a, a funny sort of tendency within myself that I want to get something done. And and I tend to, like you, I tend to rush things a little bit as well. But, and then, as you say, you end up making mistakes then, don't you, because you're rushing too much. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Read the instructions on the tin. <laughs> so, so it sounds almost like Tom Brown's schoolboys then, you know, you playing truant and then taking your exams and mucking them up. Uh, Mr. Yeah. It must have been a, a, a good childhood, though, I would imagine, and a good good school period as well, really, from, from a point oh. of view of personal happiness. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, we used to, uh, Tewksbury was seven miles away from Cheltenham Racecourse. We used to go on a double-decker bus, and, you know, all the cool kids would be up the front on the top uh, deck, and me, little tiny little thing, you know, would be at the back with the the other no-hopers. <laughs> and one day, the prettiest girl, because there was a, a girls' grammar school in Tewkesbury as well, we yeah. were separate, but we shared the same bus. The prettiest girl on the bus got up from the front, walked down, sashayed down the aisle, sat on my lap and kissed me. Wow. And, you know, I was absolutely amazed. And I said, oh... What made you do that? She said, I just wanted to annoy that lot up the front. Oh, well, that brought you down a peg or two of this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> no attraction whatsoever. Oh, yeah. dear. How unfortunate. <laughs> so, I mean, could you have dreamt at that point that you would end up being a, a, a national hunt jockey, winning the King George and uh, grand, well, uh, second in the Grand, that, all that sort of thing? I mean, could you have dreamt that then? Was it sort of part of your, your sort of daydreams? Yeah, well... Adrian, I wasn't really dreaming. I was just, you know, so down, but pleased to be riding. I mean, riding work. Up, we used to exercise the horse on Cleve Hill behind the Cheltenham there. Yeah. Marvellous, 3,000 acres up high. Great. But anyway, no, I didn't dream of anything but earning a few quid, and it was a job. Uneducated, small, could ride. What else do you do? So, no, I didn't have any, any preconceptions of where it might end at all. And who did you ride out for? Anybody well, well known? You, you wouldn't remember them, but the guy only lasted six months. Unfortunately, he was he was a goodish small trainer, but uh, he lost his license for there was a uh, dope found in the horse. And in those days, you, a trainer didn't have to be proven guilty if there was any substance found in the horse. The trainer was warned off for life. Really? Uh, but I went to three or four small trainers, probably four, thinking. If they, you know, if they're a small trainer, they'll give me rides. Well, of course, you only get to ride the things with one eye and three bad legs. The moment <laughs> they got one was any good, yeah, they they get a jockey. So uh, eventually, um, I went to Lambourne, and and I, in the waiting room, I, it was pretty well known mm. that Fred Winter, my hero, great jockey, champion jockey, would be retiring to train. And so I approached him and said, look, would you take me on? Would you give me rides? He, he said, yeah, I've watched you. Uh, you you're, you're honest and horses jump better for you than for other people. Yes, you can come and join me. No promises. You'll have to prove yourself along with the others. 
but at least my reasoning was correct. If you go to someone with decent horses, the crumbs off the table will feed you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, most definitely. Well, Fred Winter was uh, an extremely well-known, you know, jockey and trainer, wasn't he? So uh, you, well, you were going to the best, I would have thought, at that particular time. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, and uh, how long before you started actually riding regular, you know, regular races and winners? Well, uh, I'd started right from the beginning. Uh, I had four years with four different trainers, um, 60 rides, no winners. So when I went to Fred Winter, I already had a license, you see, and uh, I actually rode his first ever runner at Ludlow. Yeah. Um, we had another runner at Stratford-on-Avon that day, uh, Jay Trump, written by his American amateur jockey, who won. But my race went off 10 minutes before his and finished nine minutes before his went off because I fe- fell off at the first bend. <laughs> Not a very auspicious start. Well, now it's time for a quick musical interlude, and this is the first of Richard's choices. It's a song called Annie Song, and it's by Mr. John Denver. You fill up my senses like night in a forest. Like the mountains in springtime Like a walk in the rain Like a storm in the desert Like a sleepy blue ocean You fill up my senses Come fill me Let me give my life to you Let me drown in your laughter Let me die in your arms Let me lay down beside you Let me always be with you Come let me love you Come love me Come fill me again 
John Denver there and Annie Song. Jay Trump rings a bell, didn't he run in the Grand National? He won the Grand National in 1965. We started in 64, and the following April, he won the Grand National. And it, it, uh, in Lambourne, I mean, it's, it was a sleepy little horse village then. Um, and Tommy Smith came over from America with his horse, who'd won the Maryland Hunt Cup a couple of times. And there he was with a Stetson, uh, proper American cowboy, you know, and he had chaps. He used to ride out with chaps on his legs with with leather leather tassels on them, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he was quite something walking down the main street in Lambourne. Yeah, I'll bet. So how old would you have been at this point then, uh, Richard, when you got to, to uh, Fred Winters? I went to him in 1964 when he started, and I was born in 43, so... 19, I suppose, is that? Yeah, uh, yeah, about that. Yeah, 1920. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, from that point, when did the first winner come? Um, it, it, they were slow, but I rode one um, for him, and it won so easily. But they were slow, you know. I mean, mm. I was a boy there. He had jockeys, proper jockeys, and uh, they were slow, but they were coming. And uh, Indian Spice was my first winner at Fogwell Park, a figure of eight chase course. Yeah. And it won by 12 lengths, Adrian, absolutely bolted up. And instead of being, yay, isn't this great, I was disappointed because I'd done nothing except steer it and sit on it. Yeah. And yeah. I always thought, you know, growing up and not riding, you had to be magical, it had to be something great about you to do it. No, you just have to get the right horse, don't do anything silly. And the winners will come. Yeah. So, so talk me through as as a layman. You know, this question of a horse taking taking an extra stride. They they often mention when when they um yeah when they're jumping. Yeah. I, I mean, is that that the horse has taken control over you, or is it that you've asked it to do that? No, it's the horse taking control. You a good jockey weighs up the fence. The, your stride pattern, you know mm. whether you're going to be uh, just right to jump it. And you, you three strides away, you sort of mentally count one, two, three, give him a little tap or a kick or sit still, and up he comes. But sometimes a horse will change his mind. So you're one, two, three, whoa, he doesn't come up. He puts another stride in, a little short one. Yeah. And that is often lethal because they hit the bottom of the fence and it tips them up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that can happen is you can go in on one, two, and they can come up early, you know, come yeah. up earlier than you expected, yeah. um, which is the better of the two options, I can assure you. <laughs> and, um, you know, did you, I, I presume like most jockeys, although having said that, I I did one of these with Richard Dunwoody uh, last week, and I said to him the same question, I suppose you've broken more or less every bone in your body. And he said, no, I've only broken two, one one my sternum and also uh, one of my wrists. So I was quite surprised at that. Did you did you have as much luck as he did? Uh, yeah, I broke broke most things. But just going back to Richard Dunwoody, um, he... He actually had an injury to his shoulder. He may not have broken it, but for several seasons, his left shoulder, I believe, wasn't working. Yeah. And he managed to disguise it brilliantly, you know, from the officials. Uh, you know, they wouldn't let a one-armed man ride. Yeah. Um, and he wrote a finish with a stick in his right hand or left hand. So, so going back to the injury situation, having read um, A.P. McCoy's book, I was surprised at the, the lengths that the Jockey Club or the British Horse Racing Association would go 
to make sure that a jockey was fit? Oh, well, you, you have to look after in any sport you, you, the people who are playing it and taking part in it. And also, in racing, you imagine you're, it's not just you and your horse. You could injure other people. You've got to be right to, yeah, to, yeah. to ride. Um, the, the injury rate is quite, quite huge. Um, there used to be, in my time, well, when I was a kid at, at Cheltenham there, before I got going, two jockeys in, at Cheltenham and around Cheltenham were killed, amazingly, on the same horse, anniversary, really? for a permit holder a couple of years apart. But, you know, there were, uh, were deaths. Things got better. Helmets, of course. We didn't have helmets with straps on. Yeah. The horse hit the fence, and the helmet, the little cork thing on your head, went out before you did. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and body protectors to protect you, your collarbones and your sternum and, uh, you, you know, your, your spine. Things have got much, much better, yeah. Of course yeah. Right, it's time for Richard's second musical choice. Uh, this one is called Knowing Me, Knowing You, and it's by Abba.
then so you're 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 riding the odd winner here and there uh there must have come a point i presume when the winners started to get more uh regular and also perhaps more prestigious as well would that be the case yes but i had to earn my place there were uh, fred winter's yard grew very quickly uh, there were only six horses the day i started i i start i was the first boy there there were six horses. Very quickly, that went to 25, went to 52, which was the most stables we, we had and could ever have horses. Yeah. Um, and there were stable jockeys, so I got dips and bobs. And in the first three years with Fred, I rode 22 winners. You know, not, not much, but a long way from no winners in four years. Yeah. And so, therefore, I was earning my spurs. Mm-hmm. And eventually I got up the ladder a bit, and, and of course the rides got got better. Uh, Eddie Harty, an Irishman, was stable jockey to start with, and uh, and Dave Dick, who was uh, who won the Grand National when Devon Locke fell, he was on ESP. You know, he used some very good jockeys. And then I eventually worked my way through, and I then first shared the job with Paul Kellaway, who had ridden with Fred Winter down at Ryan Price's in, in Finland. And, um, you know, we, we sorted out the rides. We didn't. Fred did. And we all had our own rides. We lost some and we gained some. One of the best I gained from Paul was a horse called Kilini, who won nine in a row, including the Cheltenham RSA, which is the Novices Gold Cup, won by 25 lengths, and sadly was killed three weeks later. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so... so <laughs> You got rides and you lost rides. I got Kilini because Paul, he was a big horse, said to the governor, uh, he, he, he's wrong in his breathing. He, you know, he's, he's wrong. You know, I don't like him. So Fred gave him to me yeah. and he never stopped winning races. <laughs> and funny enough, we were going to have an operation on his breathing the summer after he was killed. With every intention. Well, yeah. if it improved him, he would have been, he'd have been as good as we've ever seen. Mm. Amazing horse. So, looking at the list of, of um, you know, outstanding winners, 1970 Whitbread Gold Cup, that looks to have been the first of, of your sort of big races. Would that be right? Yeah, yes. <laughs> and it wasn't for Fred Winter. I mean, I was picking up rides around and about. It was for a permit holder from Taunton called... Oh, I've forgotten his name now. Anyway, uh, he was a hard man, and, you know, and uh, he, a good man with his horses. And the horse Royal Toss had won the the Welsh Champion Chase bef- 
the season before with my brother-in-law, then Paddy Cowley, a jockey, on board. And he won by 20 lengths. And um, uh, Tim, the owner, took him on the horse. He said, you won too far. His handicap mark will be ruined. So I got the ride because my brother-in-law had won too easily on the horse. (laughs) And uh, I was light. The horse didn't have a lot of weight. And he won the Whitbread, which was, you know, first big race, as you say, end of season race. Mm. And I said to Fred Winter, do you know, uh, I, I want to go down and see uh, Tim and, and and ask him, is there any cash in the job? We don't win. You know, it's a first big race. So I went down and we looked round his horses and I said, um, excuse me for asking, but, you know, is there a present out of this? He said, now, look, son, I've had this horse nine years. I've had his mother 11 or 12. I had his grandmother 25. He said... I haven't even broken even yet, so the answer's no, no cash. <laughs> oh, nice way, nice way to put you down anyway. Um, yeah. So moving on, then it looks as though, according to my list, you, you had a King George in 72 and you had a Hennessy in 72, is that right? Yep, and two very different horses. Pendle, I mean, the, the 70s were good to me. They were really good. I flew for a few years only and then I retired, but... Yeah, I'd taken so long to get to that situation. Mm. Pendle was a tiny, more lean horse. He had two horns, which is most unusual. I've only ridden two horses with the horns, small ones, but mm. definite horns. And Pendle could jump for England. You know, if you if you put him in a bus, he'd try and jump it. He was fantastic. Yeah. And he won very easily. He'd won a lot of races. We won 11 in a row. And, uh, you know, he was a certainty for the King George, and he won very easily. Now, the Hennessy I rode for the next-door neighbor, training neighbor, Fook Warwin. There was a huge war between Winter and Warwin. And Fred Winter used to ride for Fook Warwin, so, you know, they, they knew each other very well. But we only referred to each other's stables as, oh, over the wall, you know. <laughs> anyway, Fook's jockey, Barry Brogan, broke his leg on Friday the night, day before the Hennessy. And Fook rang Fred and said, look, Fred, is that boy of yours any good? Well, I was hardly a boy then, but he said, yes, yeah, you can ride anything you've got. So I got the ride on Charlie Poteen, who was a nutcase. And uh, Fook Warwin said to me, you won't hold him, so don't try. Just, you know, keep him settled if you can in front. Uh, You'll be well clear, but just keep hold of his head, you know, don't do anything silly. Well, when he got to the winning post the first time, you passed the exit from the parade ring and stables yeah. and charlie poteen dropped the bridle and hung violently right-handed to go back home so i whacked him down the shoulder and said come on get on with another circuit well he was like a spoiled child in a supermarket who's told he can't <laughs> have any sweets you know he throws himself on the ground screaming charlie poteen went nuts and ran away with me then you know yeah. i got him settled sort of 20 loads in front of us but he then ran away with me had no control and he ran violently across his fences, right or left, didn't matter, he took into his head. Uh, and we still won by 20 lengths. Uh, I mean, amazing, amazing horse. But the following week, I rode, I don't know, I can't remember now, it might be four, it might have been six winners for football, when you see, spare rides. And come the following Saturday, he asked me to school up at the Lambourne fences. Now, once you're asked to school, you're in, you see. Yeah. So we went up in the Land Rover, his travelling head lad in the back with Fook's dog Rags, a little Yorkshire Terrier with pink bows in its hair and uh, 
die a Monte Collie, you know. Yeah, yeah. Exactly what you wouldn't think a, a trainer would have, ex-military man. We got up there, and there was only the one horse, you see. And he put me on. He said, oh, by the way, this is the one that broke Brogan's leg last week, but I'm sure he'll be all right. <laughs> now, we had seven fences in a row touching each other, three rows of them, of different heights. Yeah. And he said, if you aim at the middle of the seven, if the horse runs out, as he might do, he's got to jump one, either left or right. He'll have to jump something. So we jumped the first, and the horse cocked its jaw started going left-handed, and I'm going nearer and nearer football with the trainer, who was standing with his dogs on a lead, his dog on a lead, and I'm about to stride away from him, and Fook's eyes were as big as saucers, and he's thinking, I'm going to get mown down, I'm going to die. <laughs> and the last minute, self-preservation, the horse jinked slightly to the right and went between Fook and the dog, and the lead wrapped around the dog's leg, and he jumped the fence with me. So the dog's <laughs> yapping like mad and peeing all over the place, you see. And the lead unwrapped then as I galloped on. And I got him over the third fence. And I came trotting back quite pleased. And Fook said, uh, not only are you blind, you're mad as well. And pulled me off the horse. Said, you walk home, which was three and a half miles. And I never rode for him again. Oh, well, fair enough. All's well that ends well then. <laughs> <laughs> But I can just imagine you saying, come on, get on with it. We've got another circuit to do, yeah? <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> but he's totally spoiled, you know, just like a kid. Yeah, yeah. More music now, and this time it's Whitney Houston from the Bodyguard film, and it's called I Will Always Love You. If I should stay I would only be in your way so I'll go but I know I'll think of you every step of the way and I
That was the wonderful Whitney Houston, who sadly is no longer with us, but it was uh, I Will Always Love You from The Bodyguard. So let, let's talk about the Grand National, because uh, you know the Grand National is everybody's favourite, and uh, you had a second, but uh, it, was a, it was a pretty hot race, and uh, the legendary Red Rum beat you. Um, what's it like riding in the Grand National? Is, is it as hairy as it appears? No, it's fantastic. It really gets the adrenaline flowing, like any big sporting moment. Mm. If your heart's not in it and you don't get a buzz from doing it, you know, you might as well go off and do something else. But in fact, Adrian, before that 1973 race with Chris, who was the Australian champion by a mile over fences, one-hour, two-mile champion chase at the Cheltenham Festival, now trying four and a half miles. But before that, I rode another second called Steel Bridge in 1969, my second ride. Yeah. Uh, and he was beaten 12 lengths, but it gave me such a buzz. So anyway, come crisp in 73, you know, I really got the flavor. He was joint favorite with Red Rum. He carried top weight of 12 stone. Red Rum had 10 stone five in the handicap. So a lot of difference between us. And again, hard pulling horse. You would normally settle a two-miler in a four-and-a-half-mile race because it's doubtful he'll get a trip, you see. Yeah. Second at the back. Plus the fact he's got 12 stone to carry, you try and conserve his, his energy. But we decided he was such a bold jumper. When he saw a fence, he would quicken himself to go at it. Couldn't wait to get at it. Now, in 40-runner race, you don't see the first fence because three or four horses will go across your eye line only strides before it. Mm. So... Fred Winter decided if we're in behind, he'll be so bold and brave, he will jump onto the back of another horse <laughs> and it will pick him up. Yeah. If you don't get round, you cannot win. No. So we decided to make the running and try and slow it up from the front by just easing back, easing back. That mm. was the theory. In reality, every time Chris saw a fence, he'd quicken, jump very long and low over it and landed galloping. There'd be no hiccuping. A lot of horses at Aintree will go in and go, oh, oh my golly, and, and, and shorten their stride and pop over it and then land in a heap and get going. Chris could make lengths at each fence. Now, a lot of people, I would, a lot of stick and still do over it. People thought I was brainless going so far clear. He was never running away with me. He was quite settled and happy. It was his quickness going in, over, and away from each jump. Yeah. 30 jumps. <clears throat> so after a circuit with 14 jumps, I'm well clear. Yeah. Poor old Grace Sombrero fell at the at the, the chair, the, the narrowest of the fences that makes it look larger. Um, he fell and left me even farther clear, and it was deathly quiet. When I passed the stands, the stands erupted with the fans, but deathly quiet, couldn't hear another horse, which is so unusual. Mm, yeah, quite. But I, I can't quite i mean I, I obviously saw the race but okay is this the one where you 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 were you were in front but red rum came and caught you oh yeah he yeah. did yeah. but i was not just in front <clears throat> i was so far clear when i went down to beaches brook the second time fence 22 there used to be a public address all the way around and people were all around the course now health and safety is not allowed there yeah and i could hear the public address michael o'hare 
former Irish, late Irish commentator, was saying quite clearly, and Crisp and Dick Pittman at 25, let's clear, and the red rum's coming out of the pack, but Fletcher's kicking him. I thought, that'll do me. I'm not being, I'm not kicking, and Fletcher's kicking. Yeah. Anyway, by the time I got to the next fence, Foynaven, which is 21, David Nicholson on the inside, who'd fallen on his first circuit, was sitting on his horse like an Indian chief at the top of the hill watching everyone kill themselves below. And he got his arms folded, and he said in a very loud voice, Richard, you're actually 33 and a half lengths clear. Kick on and you'll win. Well, yeah. kick on was not what I was going to do, because stamina was the doubt, you see. Yeah, yeah. So I kept hold of his head. He was brilliant at his fences. I could cut across the corner at the chair, and we got onto the race course proper with two to jump, and the car ran out of petrol. You know, he, his ears went floppy, his legs were going sideways instead of front ways. He was, he was gone from two fences out, but it was so clear, mm. I couldn't hear another thing. And then, between the last two fences, I could hear Red Rum coming because the ground was firm, so you could hear the drum, 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 drum of his feet. And yeah. he was also a high blower. Every time he exhaled, which is every stride, his nostrils would flap. Mm. So they do a sort of... So I yeah. could hear drum, drum, getting louder and louder. And you know when you're a kid, you have nightmares. You're running away from something horrible and your feet are in treacle and you can't get away. Yeah. That's what it was like. Well, and it was only two strides from the line after four and a half miles that Red Rum got past me. Pardo Solicitors, the friendly law firm based in the heart of Somerset with offices in Yeovil, Taunton and Bridgewater with a strong ethos of helping those in our community. If in doubt, check it out with Pardo's on a free no obligation call or subscribe to our free podcast, The Friendly Law Podcast. For more information, call 0800 862 or visit pardos.co.uk. Pardo Solicitors, looking after you, your family and your business. At AJ Wakeley & Sons Family Funeral Directors, we know the importance of compassion and integrity. We also know how unfamiliar decisions can be so difficult at a time of family bereavement. We can provide a steadying influence just when you need it, guiding and helping you make the right decisions to reflect the kind of funeral that your loved one deserves. Visit our website, www.ajwakeley.com, for more information or Call Clive Wakeley on 01935 479913. Whether you're a one-man or one-woman band just starting up or a large established business, Chalmers Accountants offer a range of expert services tailor-made to your needs. They have over 100 years' experience of helping businesses of all sizes and provide a one-to-one service with your own personal account manager at one of their three local branches. For expert advice on how to make your business more successful, visit chalmersaccountants.co.uk and book your free initial consultation. Must have been heartbreaking for you, though. I mean, from from a position such as you were, I mean, you must have, you know, at some point, you must have thought you'd got it in the bag, didn't you? I did, but I could hear him coming, obviously, and I, I, I still didn't think he'd get there. And you go from elation to desolation. Mm. But why I was never champion jockey, I was twice second in the championship. Unlike McCoy, totally driven, Dunwoody, totally driven, tunnel vision. Scudamore, Frankham, they were all brilliant, and that's why they were champion jockeys. I was, it only took me a minute to recover, and I was elated 
I had a ride that money could not buy. Mm. I'd earned that ride on Crisp, and I rode him, and I had the thrill of a lifetime. To jump the fences with disdain, you know, it was... Mm. I, I, I can't explain any more than that. It was such a thrill. So I came in, I should have been shot, I had my heart, backside kick, sorry, um, you know, for being such an idiot, but I was just elated. It was a fantastic sensation. But, but you know, why, why would you be, be an idiot? Because if, if that was the plan with Fred Winter, and, and all right, you know, it misfired, but it was only two strikes, two strides more, and you would have won it, and it would have been a, a yeah. brilliant strategy, wouldn't it? Adrian, now, from about 10 years ago, they shortened the race by 90 yards. Yeah. <laughs> they moved the start. Yeah, no, that so would have made a today's difference. Thing, started one by 10 lengths. Time for some more music now. And this is uh, a song called Morning Has Broken, and it's by a young man who started off life as Cat Stevens, but he changed his name to Yusuf.
Stevens there, or Yusuf, whichever you prefer, and morning has broken. I tell you why I should have should have had my backside kick. After the last, he was absolutely wandering around and dead deep, and I picked my stick up in my right hand to wake him up. I thought I've got to wake him up before I get to the elbow, which is halfway up the up the running. You you pie past the chair and you get to an elbow and running rails, hmm. and it was a great mistake. If I wanted to go right-handed to get to the elbow, why pick my stick up in my right? Stupid, stupid boy. Hmm. I should have not even taken my hands off the reins. He's a big, strong horse. He was tired. As I took my hand off the rein to give him a slap, he fell away left-handed. Yeah. So I've had to put my stick down, grab hold of his head with the reins, and pull him back on course. And I've lost, uh, I think, a conservative two lengths and get hmm. beat half a length. Yeah. So that's why. Well, but I mean, it's still, it's, it's good, I suppose, from your office, it's good to sit back. And, and, and of course, you were beaten by a great horse as well. Not that I was saying Chris wasn't a great horse, but obviously Red Rum had the, had the uh, you know, the, the the records. I mean, three times, wasn't it, Red Rum, I think? Yeah, but he didn't at the time, Adrian. It was his first run. And his subsequent runs, he went from carrying 10 stone 5 against me. So I'm giving him 23 pounds or 25 pounds. Yeah. And... The next year, he was bumped up the handicap, and he was carrying 12 stone. We mm. couldn't go back with Chris because he got a, a slight injury. But uh, for him to go win three Grand Nationals and second in the other two, and remember, he was bred to be a sprinter, a <laughs> five-furlong horse, yeah. and, he, and he's winning these Nationals over four and a half miles. Amazing horse. Yeah, it was, wasn't it, really? So you've got a son, haven't you, Mark, who is also a jockey. Um, tell me about him. Has, has he's had some success? Yeah. He <coughs> um, rode for his mother. Uh, we divorced and we had stables in Lambourne. And when Mark became of age, he rode, he rode in his first national at about the age of 16. Really? But yeah. he also rode a second, 18 years after me, on a horse that he'd won the Cheltenham Gold Cup on three weeks earlier called Garrison Savannah. Yeah. And then he... Two hours after he'd won the Gold Cup, he was in Cheltenham General Hospital with internal injuries. He always fallen and trodden on his, his stomach hmm. and head like a balloon. And he managed to get back to what we thought was enough fitness um, three weeks later and rode. He, like me, was clear at the last, clear at the elbow, and then again stamina came into it. And the horse just walked home. And he was beaten in the end by a horse called Seagram. And they sponsored the race, Seagram. Yeah, uh, yes. But he was beaten five lengths. Now, to be overtaken when you're clear at the, uh, the elbow, halfway up the running, and then be beaten five lengths, shows you how tired the horse was. Yeah. But uh, I was commentating for the BBC, and, and therefore I had to do the replay. Another jockey was with me, Bill Smith. And... Uh, when he jumped the last and was going clear, I, I got up and I said, Bill, you do the replay. I'm, I'm off to see the boy come in. And by the time I got my coat on, he said, you better turn around. The picture's changed. <laughs> and he was being caught hand over fist. Yeah. So he, he was a better jockey than me, but he was heavy. He, I was heavy, but he was even heavier. He had to live in a sauna in his garage every morning, 5 o'clock till 7 o'clock, sweating, before going out to ride 10 horses in the gallops. And January, you imagine that, you know, oh. from sweating for two hours, yeah. actually freezing. I mean, so it's a hard game if you're not. If yeah. John Joe Neal never had to miss breakfast or sweat, you know, it's great. It makes the game a lot easier. Uh. So I was proud of Mark. He won a lot of good races. 
but he was heavy and so therefore his career didn't go on long. He then trained. He had two winners at the Cheltenham Festival in his first two seasons. He won the Hennessy uh, and then stopped training through marriage difficulties. Um, so, yeah, I was very proud of him. Um, so at what point then did you decide that it was time to hang up your boots? Well, it was quite an easy thing to do, uh, Adrian, because uh, John Frank had come through the ranks while I was at Fred Winters, a senior jockey. He had left school in Swindon, and he came to us age 16, I suppose, and he was chubby, big hands and big feet, and he joined, and we'd had lots of young boys joining, you see, and he'd been a, a, an international show jumper as a kid. So anyway, he's having an interview with Fred Winter, and Fred said, look, son, I don't want to waste your time, but look at those hands and feet. You're a heavy, chubby little thing now. He said, you'll, you'll never do, do the weights jockeying. He said, I'd go and do something else. And then Paul said, what's the lightest you've ever been? And Frankham straight away said, seven pounds, three ounces, when I was born. <laughs> <laughs> he was <laughs> like that, though, wasn't he? He was always... <laughs> but he said, we've got enough clever so-and-so's here now. We don't need another one. But he liked him. He liked his, his spirit, you see. Yeah. And Frankham immediately realised he'd, he'd got to lose weight. And he, funny enough, he's lighter now than, than he was when he left school. And he's 67 now. But he was, he, he was 10 years younger than me. So he came through the ranks, and he came up to share the job, as I'd shared it with Paul Kellaway years before. He came up to share it with me, and we had equal number of winners at the end of the season. And I'd got uh, a call from the BBC two years earlier to go and join them. And, you know, in those days, you, you were on those teams as a pundit. You were there for life. Yeah. So I turned it down two years earlier because I had the five best horses in the country to ride. Right. Uh, Eula, Pendle, Lanzarotti, Crisp, and Killini. Well, Killini died. Mm. Others got leg problems. And so the, when they came back two years later, I only had two of the best horses in the country to ride. Mm. And one of them, Pendle, had leg problems. And Fred Winter and I were forking up the muck hill, you know, getting it all nice and yeah. straight for the end of, end of morning stables while other lads swept the yard or did the tack, and we were chatting away, and I said, I've been offered the job again. What's my situation here? He said, well, as long as you feel that you're up to it and you're, you're riding well, you can share the job. But he said, John will ride the hurdlers going chasing because he's obviously the future. Yeah. I said, well, there's one thing that made me turn the bead down again. Would you run Pendle in the Grand National? He said, no, without even thinking about it because he said his legs are too fragile, landing over the big fences, the drop at beaches. I wouldn't ask the horse to do it. So mm. I said, well, in that case, I'll retire. Frankham's better. Um, he's younger. Uh, I've got a job to go to. And we shook hands with that in our wellies up to, up to our knees in muck, yeah. which is, you know, quite quite great, really. Jockeys don't muck out these days, I can assure you. Not the stable jockeys no and how long did you work for the bbc and and i presume that was up, up alongside peter o'sullivan yes i was with them 35 years were you um oh. both as originally as a paddock commentator you know telling the punters what they look like what yeah. i thought they'd do uh then as an interviewer and, and a presenter when julian wilson who was the head honcho was away he used to go away for three months in the winter and he'd be ill sometimes so i'd present from all over the place. So it was, it was an arm. To be, Adrian, to be paid to do a job like that, you know, any old football mm. pundits, you know, to be through 
the sport and then be paid to comment on it. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. Right, time for the last of Richard's musical choices. And we got the big finale. And this one is uh, Adele and the theme from the film Skyfall.
Adele there, and the theme from the James Bond film Skyfall. So, so looking back, what, what do you, how do you compare BBC Racing and their presentation techniques? And I know, obviously, things have moved on in terms of technical ad- advancement and what have you. But uh, how do you compare it with with uh, ITV Racing now? Well, it, it's as you know, very difficult to compare eras, um, and we were. Um, not allowed to do anything other than, well, we were strictly regulated because it was all run by ex-military men. Hmm. And so we had no access to anything. Now you can put a camera anywhere, you know, in the fence, in the starting stalls, anywhere. And they have access to places. We could never film uh, in the uh, um, members' enclosure and things like that, you know. Hmm. And when we eventually, and it took 10 years of trying to get a camera into the changing room for the Grand National, because having ridden in it, I know the excitement, the, you know, the adrenaline. It's a great place to be. Hmm. Camaraderie is fantastic. And they uh, uh, let us have one eventually, but it had to be static with no cameraman. So there was a static feed we could take when we wanted. Yeah. But 10 years to get a live cameraman, and we got some great shots and some great instant interviews just for their going out when they were coming in mm. now as i say access everywhere and the other thing was really julian wilson who ran it um uh, like being in a fixed position you know got his notes there he, he so he wouldn't go out and about and he wouldn't let us go out and about either mm. so it changed the whole thing changed that's life what do you think of itv racing generally though love it yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you there, Adrian. Love it. Yeah. Uh, they've got someone to, well, more than someone, but they've got people to suit everyone's taste. Some people will hate Matt Chapman because he's loud and opinionated, but he's knowledgeable. Yeah. Others think, or used to think, that Luke Harvey was just a fool. No, he's far from a fool. <clears throat> Excuse mm. me. Again, very knowledgeable, fun. And then you've, you've got the main presenters who are different. Um, and now occasionally Ruby Walsh comes in from Ireland. Mm. He is the most outstanding pundit on racing I've ever heard. Really? I love listening to him. Mm. He, McCoy's with them, great. Mick Fitzgerald, great. But Ruby Walsh is head and shoulders above them. Yeah, it's interesting listening to what he has to say. But of course, they've, they've got Francesca Kimani and she's got to be better looking than you, mate, with the best will in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I like Francesca, and uh, she she tries to pull the wool over my eyes because she, she's so well-dressed. Yeah. But I say, how on earth, because we didn't get expenses for clothes, how on earth do you get expenses for all these clothes? She said, oh, I've got a dresser, and she goes around charity shops. Well, I'm sorry, I do not believe that. No. You know, they are such quality, and they're brilliantly dressed. So. Yeah. She told a porcupine there. Uh, she's a nice looking woman, though, nonetheless. But um, Very. going back to to the BBC coverage, you, you must have some amusing tales to tell of sort of situations that may be gone wrong, or you know that that, that sort of you can instantly yes. flash back to. You know, can you come up with any? Oh yeah, oh yeah, quite. I mean, I've seen some great races that are etched in my mind when Aldeniti won with Bob Champion, who just you know, just mm. over two years of. Cancer, you know, started testicular cancer and then went elsewhere in his body. And to get back and then do that was incredible. And had he had his horse coughed in the morning, Aldenitia not run, the second horse, um, Spartan Missile, was ridden by 54-year-old amateur John 
born there and the stallion and bred the horse, trained it and rode it. What a story that is for a man of 54 to have bred the horse, ride it. And had Champ not been there, he'd have won the national. Mm. So a great fairy tale could have been. Now, on the reverse side of the great winners, and, oh, incidentally, Charlie Fenwick was another American who won on Ben Nevis in probably 81, I suppose. Um, he'd fallen the year before, and I'd put him up as a story, so we followed him as a feature. American rider, you know, first to go since Jay Trump and Tommy Smith. Mm. And we followed him, and he fell. So the following year, that was, must have been 80. So the following year, I put him up as a story again, you see. And they said, oh, no, to hell with him. He had his chance last year. Well, of course, he won the next year at 40 to 1. And he'd been favorite the year before. Yeah. It's easy how and quickly people forget. Mm. But going on from victories, Adrian, mm. there were two enormous things. One was the void race, and yeah. one was when it was... Uh, the the IRA bomb threat. Bomb you know? threat, yeah, but, yes, remember oh, that. Yeah. I mean, the the uh, bomb threat year. I'm sitting at my my little podium. I've done my bit, going around the paddocks, handed over to Peter Sullivan to start. And um, no, no, sorry, that was the void race. Let's let's concentrate on the void race. So hand over to Peter Sullivan. Two false starts, and Richard Dunwoody was caught by the tapes, which are 50 yards elastic, a stretch across the course. The tapes caught him round the neck and were about <laughs> to pull him off when he unraveled it. Yeah. So that was why one false start was. And then second false start, because they're all gung-ho, let's go as fast as we can to the first. The recall flagman, he was in an ordinary sort of brown suit. He had a flag that was the size of an A4 piece of paper, and it was dark red. Well, mm. you know, it doesn't... Now they have three flagmen dressed in white overalls with great big yellow and orange squared flags as big as, you, big as the size of your house. You yeah. couldn't miss them these days. No, that's right. But so the riders decided, some of them, quite a few, to ignore the flagman. I don't think... They say they couldn't see him because of the small flag, etc. And they went on. And um, they're going around, and, and, and people are trying to stop them at different points. And the chair, just before you, you finish one circuit, the water jumps the last, but the, the chair, they dolled it off, and they had a man there, uh, Roger Farron, who was waving his arms at them, standing actually in the middle of the fence, saying, whoa, stop, stop. And they thought he was a, 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 someone who was try, he's trying to stop it of his own volition, you know, as we yeah, have. yeah people rioting in the past. So they went past him either side and jumped the fence, and nine of them completed the course. Well, while this is going on, the producer shouted at me, Pittman, get off your fat backside and get down to the start and find out what can happen. I want you to get on this. So I've rushed out of the position I was in, and it, we, we were on a scaffolding with a little hut, and planks outside and it, they were wet and I fell over on the planks and I was winded. <laughs> well, we have floor managers, all the interviewers. My guy, big ex-rugby player, picked me up by the overcoat and rushed me. I I'm, can't breathe, can't talk, you know, when you're winded. You're mm. in terrible agony. And he rushed me through the crowds, pushing people out of the way, got to the start where the starter was and he was surrounded by a mob of press and everyone else and again he pushed people out of the way and he stood me upright and, and gave me the mic and I said, now, do your bit. So I said to the starter, Keith, Keith, 
can you tell me what can happen? And the guy was brilliant. He said, yep, anything that fell or anything that completed one circuit cannot run again if we run the race again. To which <laughs> a fist came through the picture, alive, you see, came through the picture and didn't quite get to the starter's chin. And it was the trainer of the favourite, uh, John Upperson, Zeta's ladder, I think it was. And he said, the next time I see you, Brown, we'll be in the court. It was great television. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I'd, I've done my bit, you see. Mm. And I'm walking slowly back, quite pleased with myself. And the producer then said, Pittman, Pittman, that, that was OK, but we want to find a steward. Find a steward. Well, they were all in a porter cabin on some scaffolding that was four ladders high. So you had to go up four, you know, ordinary rickety wooden ladders yeah. up to this porter cabin. <laughs> and at the bottom of the first ladder was a Coldstream guard, something, you know, chap with a big buzzy yeah. uh, thing on, and a sword. And he said, you can't go up here, son. Sorry, stewards are up there. I said, yes. And I am wet, honestly, Adrian. I'm wet, but it came from somewhere. I said, yes, I, we know. They've invited us up, BBC, to tell us what's happening. He said, oh, after you, sir. So we've gone up the ladders knocked on the door of the porter cabin, and out came the steward's secretary, the professional man, mm -hmm. uh, called Patrick Hibbert Foy, ex-military, you see? So I knocked on the porter cabin door, and it opened, and out came Patrick Hibbert Foy, former military, and he was the professional steward there. And um, he said, yes, people, what can we do? Well, I mean, we, we've got a lot going on here. I said, oh, Patrick, the world's watching. We're, we're live into Hong Kong, Australia, America, and Hong Kong can't bet until they know, on their next race in Hong Kong, until they know the result of this one. Can you tell me what's happening? The world is watching us. He said, in a very supercilious voice, you will be informed after the general public on the course of being informed. And slammed the door. Well, <laughs> I mean, there are 60,000 people on the course. We had 600 million worldwide. I mean, how ridiculous. As a result of that, of course, we got a lot more uh, help from the powers that be because they've been made to look ridiculous. So that was, I know I'm rabbiting on, but it was quite a miraculous thing to be caught up in the maelstrom of, of, of that happening. Yeah. Well, Richard, we thought we'd finish with the music, but this seems an opportune moment. I've got a little bit of spare time to give you one more song, which I've chosen for you. Of course, it's the theme from Champion by Carl Davis.
there you go, the theme music from that fantastic film called Champion by Carl Davis. If ever a piece of music will be connected to a film, it'll certainly be that one. Of course, it was the story of Bob Champion and Alderneity. Just the mere fact of, of the race, you know, getting in such a mess that they've had to cancel it and horses are going round and some aren't and some have stopped. And, you know, you, you, when you look at it now, you can't really imagine it happening, can you? It, it, it's, such a, no. it's such a well-organised race. Yeah, and of course they altered the the start now. You know, it, it doesn't happen, and they moved it away from the where it was right by the grandstand, so that the jockeys and the horses didn't get too g'd up. Yeah. Um, so it, it's all it, it's all changed. Good do stuff. Wanna, though. Do you want to talk about the other major incident, the bomb? Um, no, I was going to I was going to move on to books because uh, you, you're you're a, a quite an accomplished author, and uh, you know, uh, BBC commentator, author, jockey. It's uh, you know it's quite a CV, so uh, I thought I'd better just uh, we better just touch on those for a little bit. What, what? Yes, otherwise you will need a two-hour program. Um, <laughs> I, I was slow into books. Dick Francis, former jockey, Grand National jockey, who rode the Queen Mother's Devon Lock but collapsed halfway up the run-in, uh, would have won easily. Um, <laughs> he wrote forty-two in his lifetime, and they were bestsellers. The last. Ooh, 20 of them, every time they were published, they'd go, he'd sell a million. Anyway, John Frankham started writing. We, Dick was getting older, you see, and John Frankham started writing, trying to get Dick's market. My ex-wife started as well, and they wrote between them about 40 books, I suppose. Really? So I was late into the scene, mm. and I tried, and I wrote seven, and they're good books, but I could only sell 20,000, which is actually quite a good number but not compared to Dick's market. Dick Francis, we could not get his market. So um, I wrote Seven with a friend of mine called Joe McNally, who's a real betting man, and me being a sporting jockey, never rode for gamblers. I knew nothing about the betting side of it. So we wrote Seven, and they're good. They weren't just about winners here, winners there. We had Mount, climbing Mount Everest, but to do with racing owners. and Another one with a, uh, a flat in, in Ireland, that was derelict and just the father and the son lived there, you know, and he had a pony tied to a rock down in the garden and, and those, all these sort of things. And they went, well, but um, we weren't going anyway. It's a hard, you know, I was doing other jobs and it's, it's hard work doing a book. You've got to be dedicated. Mm, but mm. funny enough, I have written a, a teenager's book called Scruffy, the pony that wouldn't be ridden, and Holly, the girl that, couldn't, wouldn't talk, and they both had traumas that made them like that. Anyway, I wrote it a year ago, put it in the drawer, I haven't done it with it since, so I, I, I will, now that we're in lockdown again, I think I'll probably get it out. Mm. And, and what are you doing now, Richard? I think you mentioned that you've got a stud farm or something, have you? Yeah, um, yes, grandly called stud farm, although we've slowly got rid of um, the thoroughbreds. I, I do have them back in the summer from training, because we buy horses, my wife, Mandy, and I, for Mm. Three Americans uh, to go to America and to race here. They've horses with Richard Hannon, Ray Beckett, Mark Johnson up in Yorkshire, uh, Ben Pauling and his brother-in-law, Charlie Longston, in the Cotswolds, Willie Mullins in Ireland. So, you know, we've got a lot of interests mm. going on with those. It's fascinating. We, we had a group one winner at Leopardstown on Boxing Day who will go to Cheltenham, although I don't think it'll quite be good enough called Franco de Port. But we've also had, they've been leading champion owners in the States jumping for the last three years. We've had the 
best two-year-old of the year, Chiggy Wiggy, about 10 years ago, I suppose. She, you know, ended up unbeaten and only beaten the neck at, uh, at Royal Ascot and then won a grade one at Newmarket. Great. So it's been a real fun journey buying horses. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Because uh, funnily enough, we've got a, I live in a, uh, just outside Yeovil and um, we've got a little stud farm literally just down the road from us. So um, uh, I used to, a guy called Michael Fulton, I don't know if you've ever come across him yes, at all. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, he, he was down there until he's, he's retired now, but uh, I used to wander down there. I mean, they had, um, what was it called? Run, I think was one of them. Certainly yeah, it used to be yeah, down there. And, uh, yeah. yeah. And then, and then another uh, stud appeared. Well, I say appeared, but a guy called Dick Falston, who was in the next village down from us. So we'd be sort of crammed between the two. And I've also got, um, we've got Harry Fry, not far from us, about two miles, Jack Barber, about half a mile and Anthony Honeyball. So we're in quite a yeah. sort of a, 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 quite a tight racing little, oh, and, um, Kaylee Woolacott. She's, she's in Kruker. And so, um, yeah, and just up the road by Wincans, and you've got Paul Nichols, champion uh, trainer. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we're right in the thick of it down here, really. So, uh, I've, I've got a couple, I've got an interest in this uh, hot to trot uh, syndicate. I don't oh, know if yeah, yeah, it. yeah, I know the syndicate. Yeah, so I've, I've got, I'm, I'm a, a part of that. So that keeps me going a little bit because I could never hope to afford to actually own a horse and keep it in training. It's just that little bit too much. But, you know, you yeah. get you get the excitement of it all without having to pay yeah. out an absolute fortune for it. So uh, so yeah. I enjoy that. It's about you know. 35 grand now with a, a a decent trainer to train and run a horse a year. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you know, you've got you to gotta be hopeful that the course is good enough to win you some money back to, to break even yeah. it, really, haven't you? Which is a, a bit of a gamble. But... Adrian, I think you've got to settle for a bit of excitement. <laughs> You're yeah. not going to get much money back. <laughs> no, that's right, absolutely. But I mean, the trouble with Wincanton is it's always about twenty degrees lower than anywhere else in the bloody country. That's yeah. the problem with Wincanton. <laughs> but look, Richard, it's been an absolute joy to talk to you. Um, I'm sure you could go on for a lot longer, and I'd love to listen to you going on for a lot longer. But I've only got an hour for the program, so uh, yeah. Uh, so it's been it's been great. So thank you ever so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. And uh, I will let you know when the program's going out. And um, please keep in touch because if you've got anything else that uh, you think is worthy of going on the radio, please let me know and we can do a program for you. Okay, that's really kind, um, Adrian. And, and I love the area you're in, and, and there's some great trainers there. So wish you luck and wish your viewers, uh, or listeners rather, luck too. Yeah, well, thank you very much for that anyway. And uh, as I say, thanks for joining us. This is Three Valleys Radio. The heart is a and you've been listening to the In Conversation program with A.D. Hopper. Make sure you join us every week here on Three Valleys Radio.
Your love is done.